that I'm used to the other tune. I did. I, at times, <laughs> the hymns which we pick, or at least in my case, uh, I'm, I'm not always aware that they've changed the tune, even though the words are the same. So uh, I apologize for not indicating that. I was surprised by that as much as you were. So <laughs> I'm not sure which one we'll sing in the future. It's a good hymn. Maybe, maybe we'll do that one from the blue again in the future. At any rate, uh, the reading of the Word of God now is the completion of Leviticus 25, verses 39 to the end of the chapter. And listen on or read on with me as I read God's Word. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and a sojourner. He shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you, To inherit them as a possession, they shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again, one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year uh, that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining, according to them, he shall repay the pride of his own uh, redemption from the money which, uh, for, with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him. And according to his years, he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And we acknowledge that uh, we depend upon your spirit, not only to renew our minds after the image of Christ, but even to receive the things of God as those who are renewed. Uh, give, uh, Give us a true understanding of what it is you have to say to us, even from this Uh, your Old Testament. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been many weeks since we've been in Leviticus. Uh, I thought it might be helpful to just review where we are in chapter 25. If you remember, 
there were two main features of chapter 25, and indeed, uh, to speak even more broadly, chapters 23 through 25 had to do with uh, what you might call the church calendar of Israel, and there was, of course, the heavy emphasis upon the Sabbaths and, the, and then the feasts. But then as you come to chapter 25, there is the emphasis upon these two years, the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. Now, uh, the year of Jubilee uh, is especially relevant uh, to what we are considering here because there was a mechanism in the year of Jubilee that becomes the focus here, and that is uh, the mechanism of redemption. And redemption itself had various uh, forms and mechanisms. In other words, there were various ways whereby someone or something might be redeemed. Jubilee was only one of them. Jubilee is, you might say, the final measure, the final redemption. If no redemption had occurred before, if nothing else brought about a full redemption of a man or his land, Jubilee certainly would. Now, as you remember, the tragedy of Israel's history is that she never observed a sabbatical year, and I don't believe she ever observed a Jubilee either. But Jubilee wasn't the only way to find redemption. There were also other ways uh, leading up to the year of Jubilee that might happen beforehand. And those are what are considered here. Having introduced the concept uh, with connection uh, to the Jubilee, now we have other methods presented in verses 30, uh, 23 through 55. Uh, and the way I think to benefit from this the most uh, is to look at the concept of redemption uh, in its varied forms in this passage. In other words, uh, to, to use the language of the confession, it speaks of uh, the civil and the ceremonial law, uh, the, the civil law actually, having, uh, having no application today except insofar as the general equity applies. Uh, that's always a, a valuable way to look at laws which we know are no longer in effect, the laws of Redemption are not applying to us in, in this detailed way any longer. Yet we know redemption is some kind of abiding relevance to us. Obviously, the New Testament is full of the language of, of, of redemption. Uh, and, and that concept is broader than us just saying, though certainly we will say, Jesus, redeem me from my sins. Thank God we will say that. But, but there's an even broader picture here of redemption, all of which I think uh, comes to us by way of general equity. A series of principles which have value to us. And the first of these is that of stewardship or inheritance. Two, two ideas which go hand in hand. By virtue of her inheritance, Israel's inheritance of the land, uh, she became stewards of the land. And what we notice at the outset, remember that land could be redeemed and people could be redeemed. Uh, the first thing God says is, the land is mine. This land which I'm given to you, uh, giving to you is mine. And so you're not allowed to sell it permanently because, well, actually, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. It is yours by right of inheritance. But uh, even then, you are the stewards of the land. Uh, one of the things that we have to bear in mind, though it doesn't become clear here in Leviticus, is that each tribe was entitled to a certain portion of the land. And it was very important that that didn't get all mixed up. The land, even if it was sold, had to return to its proper order, just as God had distributed it. And so they're not at liberty to give it away or sell it forever, God says, because it belongs to him. If it is sold or if it is lost, it must be returned. 
which made, as I say, the people stewards of the land they would soon possess. And if they were stewards of a land that really wasn't theirs, then there must be a mechanism for the land to be restored to them if somehow they lost it. If in desperate straits they sold it to someone else. Uh, So often we find it it said if, if your brother becomes poor, that's the idea here. He might sell himself or his labor to someone else, to one of his brothers in Israel. Or he might sell his land. Well, there must be a mechanism to have it restored. And it is precisely in that context that the concept of redemption becomes relevant to us. We also see... Uh, And I'm tempted to do a lot with this, so I'm not going to. But this is the kind of thing that, well, I always find it arresting. When we find God speaking of the people as strangers and sojourners. And typically we think of uh, Israel on her pilgrimage from Egypt to the land as strangers and sojourners. And and in that sense, uh, they become a kind of uh, picture of the New Testament church. But isn't it interesting to see here? And I almost don't know what to make of it. It's just... As I say, it's arresting uh, that the people are called strangers and sojourners even when they're in the land. As though to doubly underscore the way in which uh, the land was not theirs, nor was it to be their true and lasting possession. But that even should they inherit it in time, they would, like Abraham, who dwelt in the land and did not possess it, look for the heavenly Jerusalem to come. But we must also realize there's a heavy focus on the land, but there is an equal, uh, if not heavier focus on the people themselves. God is God said the land is mine, but uh, but even more so the people are mine. They belong to me, God says they belong to me by right. I have made them my own. He was their rightful owner, as with the land. He, He never says the people are mine, as explicitly as he says the land is mine. But it, it, it comes out in so many, so many ways. It, he says, uh, for instance, in verse, verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. As I give you the land, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising my ownership over you. Verse 42, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. So servants, uh, let's see, one other place, for the, uh, 55, the last verse. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So these tenants, these strangers, these sojourners in the land were his very own people whom he owned by right. His servants, his slaves. Uh, that, that language should sound familiar because that's precisely how Paul refers to himself. I am a slave of Christ. You're a slave of Christ if you're a Christian. That's what you are. That kind of language uh, pervades the whole of Scripture. But you notice how God emphasizes this and this begins to introduce to us the concept of redemption. He doesn't just say they're mine. He might have said that, but he goes further. He says they are my servants for I have brought them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I have paid for them with uh, a price. I've bought them. In other words, God is saying I am their redeemer. I am the one who brought Israel out of bondage into my service. And so now they are mine. 
so that God could say, as Paul later says in Romans chapter six, that uh, God ended our former slavery. So he ended the former slavery, which uh, which the Israelites endured under the hard hand of the Egyptians. But he brought them into another kind of slavery, not to one another, God says. You're not to sell one another uh, to each other as slaves. If that happens, he's more like a servant, a hired hand. He's not a slave. Why? Because I've ended your bondage. I've ended your slavery. You belong to me now. And now you're slaves of me. You're my servants. Well, that brings us to the second concept, and that is the concept of redemption, which is the main idea, obviously. Though I want you to see uh, how, how varied the idea comes to us. The concept of redemption is based on the prior point, namely the, the point of stewardship. The fact that uh, they were not their own, they belonged to God, the, both they and the land, the people of Israel. So that when the land or a person was redeemed, he or it, it being land, was bought back. That's the, the overarching concept here. It was sold, but then it was restored. Uh, a very similar, though uh, not entirely the same, uh, idea is found in the New Testament when Jesus repeatedly talks about that which was lost and later was found. As though to say, though not exactly the same, it was, it was bought back. It was brought back into its prior state. It was lost for a time, but now it's been regained. It's been restored. Very similar. Redemption means to buy something back or to ransom it. And when this occurred, it was done by right. In other words, uh, Israel was entitled to the right of redemption. That's why these are called the laws of redemption. It was something which God uh, entitled them to have this ability to redeem the land or themselves. In other words, neither could be left in the, the wrong hands for long. Neither could be lost for very long. Whether the land or the person was lost, it would soon be regained and reclaimed to its rightful place. Now, redemption, which again means to buy back, could have uh, could occur in uh, different ways. The most uh, natural way for it to occur to occur was uh, was by the man himself. He might he might sell land, and then once he had the ability to do so, he had the right to buy it back. Uh, the person he sold it to couldn't protest. That's why I'm saying they were entitled to redemption. It was theirs by right. If he could afford it, he could buy the land back. Or it could occur, and this is what we're most familiar with, it could occur by a redeemer, a relative who was wealthy, who had the ability to say, I'm, I'm purchasing this piece of land, I'm purchasing this person, or in the case of Naomi, both. One who was his relative, who had in his heart a desire to redeem him. Finally, uh, the, the final mechanism was that of the year of Jubilee. In which case the Lord would become the redeemer of his people. The people could not redeem themselves. There was no redeemer to redeem them. Well, then the Lord would be their redeemer. And really, the sense we get here is that he always was. Even in these, uh, when these secondary human redeemers came along, the overarching sense is the Lord is Israel's redeemer. He's the one who bought them with a price. He's the one who bought them back to himself. 
Well, the concept of a redeemer, if we're to look at that primarily, and I think that is our primary interest, though I'll have a little more to say about the Jubilee, had two cardinal facets. And isn't it interesting, by the way, just to, as an aside, recognize that, well, didn't we consider that last Sunday night? I know that my redeemer lives. Uh, from Job chapter 19, as other Stevens preached it, well, let me try to preach it a little bit here. There are two concepts of the Goel, I think that's how you say it, uh, uh, the Redeemer. He was, first of all, to be a kinsman, that is to say, a relative. Now, why was that important? Well, in some sense, you might say this was similar to the concept of the priesthood. As someone who had an interest in uh, those whom he sought to redeem, those whom he sought to help. Someone who had not only an interest, but a heart. Uh, For the person. A relative. Uh, But in this he was to play the role of a redeemer. The redeemer was someone who. Having a heart for his lost brother let's say. uh, Became the one who paid the price of redemption. He couldn't pay it himself. Well then I am willing to pay it the redeemer says. And that wasn't always true as you know. Uh, In fact, there's some language here. If if he's willing to do it, well, he wasn't always willing to do it. You might have a redeemer, a kinsman who who is unwilling to play the part of the redeemer. If we think of uh, the chief examples of this in the Old Testament, not not of those who weren't willing, but those who were. Well, the most obvious has to be God himself, as he indicates here. What God was doing in uh, the Exodus was playing the part of the redeemer. His heart went out to the children of Israel. He heard their groanings and their cries. And not only he didn't just have this feeling for them. But he actually redeemed them. I brought them out of the land of bondage. I ended their slavery and I conscripted them to my service. The other obvious example is that of Boaz. And you remember there was another man in his place. A nearer relative who would not redeem Naomi. And so he steps in. He wasn't the nearest redeemer, but he was the most willing redeemer. But that brings us to Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. You see, I want to emphasize that. And and I'll tell you that uh, Bonar in his his commentary in Leviticus uh, does the same thing as well. Don't don't limit Jesus to the idea of the redeemer. Have the full concept, the kinsman redeemer. Let us see that he meets both requirements and let us see first that. He was our kinsman. You see, not only does he have a right to us, but he has a heart for us. Let me read. Let me read what Bonar says. He says, truly, he is our kinsman. Nay, like one who is nearest of kin, for his feelings are most vehement toward us. He will not like the nearest friend of Naomi. That nearer relation I spoke of earlier. Refuse to redeem either our persons or our inheritance. For he has all Boaz desired toward us in thousandfold strength. With the undoubted right to appear for us. Well, what we have to see is that he is, uh, he is not a kinsman who stands far off. But he's a kinsman who draws near. He's the one who stands uh, as the one entitled to our redemption. Because he has been made one like us. But he's not only, as I say, one who has a right to us, but one who has a heart for us. 
He wants to redeem us. He does redeem us. He redeems us at great price to himself. He pays the price of our redemption. And what was that price? Well, the price was this. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And that is precisely the price that he pays. The way, the way that Jesus redeems us, our kinsman redeemer, one who was made like us, one who draws near to us, one who has a fellow feeling for us and sympathy for us, was at the cost of his own blood. He redeems us, as the, as the New Testament says again and again. Is by, uh, he redeems us by shedding his own blood. So that we see Paul saying, and I'm, I'm saying along with Paul, that we've been bought with a price. And the price was that of the blood of Jesus Christ. And do you understand, beloved, how precious and how costly that blood was? It required nothing less than that the eternal Son of God should take upon him human flesh and be made one like us. And why? Not only that he would be related to us and draw near to us, as Hebrew says. He didn't draw near to angels. He drew near to men. He did so that, so that he might take the sting out of death, which is the law and sin. That he would end our bondage and the terror to death and to the law and to sin. He puts an end to all of it. But he doesn't just end it, you see. But he buys us back. He finds that which was lost. He restores us to God. He buys us back and he presents us to God as his prized possession. So that we, let us realize, as Israel, do not belong to ourselves but to him. That indeed is the general equity of redemption. The total picture involved must involve uh, not simply the redeemer, but the redeemed. Let us emphasize not only the fact of Jesus' redemption, but uh, uh, the the, the price he paid, I mean, for our, our redemption, but the fact that we now are considered by God to be the redeemed, which means, I say again, We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. Well, there's many other things that might be said about this concept. Seeing ourselves as, in reality, standing in the same relationship, only much more so. There are things which God says are involved in redemption. And there are certain requirements which are placed upon the the redeemed having experienced redemption. And and the uh, the third concept which we consider then is that of reciprocity. Reciprocity. Redemption carries with it the requirement of reciprocity. Here the thought is, as God has done to you, so you must do to your brother. You are not free to do otherwise. If God has been generous to you, you are not free not to be generous to your brother. If you are the benefactors of grace and redemption, can you then close your heart to your brother? That's the thought. Now again, here's the picture that God paints. Israel was in bondage. But she's in bondage no more. Thank God she's been redeemed. That is the dominant overarching idea. This is also what we find in the New Testament, as I say, over and over again. We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. But coming back to the language which we have here, if a man sells himself into a kind of indentured servitude, it's really like a kind of employment, not slavery. For slavery really wasn't possible anymore. God had ruled it out. He had freed his people and placed them in the land. And that's how they must now view each other's uh, each, each other. Well, themselves and each other. The idea was God has set me free and thus I'm to regard my brother as free. I am to go 
as far as God goes, insofar as I'm able. And if they were set free, well, then free to do what? They were set free to serve God. They were set free to love their brother and so forth. But nothing of her former life in Egypt must be found now among her. And so there's a kind of reciprocity, God is saying, between God and man. Just as God does, so you go and do likewise. Insofar as God has acted for us, so we will act for others. And this idea, as I say, is found throughout the scriptures. You think of what Jesus says. If you refuse to forgive your brother, will your father in heaven forgive you? So often we find him saying that in the gospels. The thought is, if God, at the price of his own dear son's blood, has forgiven your sins, will you not forgive your brother in the same way? You see, that's part of the picture of redemption. If God has redeemed you by his mercy, you are to be full of his redeeming mercies toward your brother. But that brings us then to the next idea, and that is the principle of differentiation, which is fascinating to observe here. There's all sorts of distinctions that God is making, and many of these are the same distinctions that we find in the New Covenant. The question here is simply who is entitled to all this? Who was entitled to the right of redemption? Who is my brother? And so on and so forth. Who were the objects and the recipients of God's redemption? The answer which is given here is, well, it was the children of Israel and only they. And so God is drawing a line of uh, demarcation between the children of Israel as the recipients of redemption and everyone else. In other words, what God was saying is to others, there is no right of redemption for I am not their redeemer. Now, for some reason, people find such things difficult to say. They, they are unsettled by the idea of God electing some and, and, and reprobating others. I don't know that, that we have difficulty saying that. I don't, I don't think that we do. But this is something that Christians just, uh, just seem to be uh, almost unwilling to say. God redeems some and not others. That God does not treat all men the same. Some men experience his favor. Others do not. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter of his will, not of your works. Could anything be clearer to us in scripture than that some are saved and others are not? And that this is a difference which God himself makes. Those who are recipients of redemption are so as a matter of grace and not of works. This is a a difference which Jesus speaks of as well, uh, as well as the Apostle Paul. For instance, Jesus tells us, uh, he he draws a line of demarcation between uh, our spiritual family and our natural family. And he says, well, anyone who doesn't love love me more than uh, your natural relatives is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Or he even made that personal at one point where they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers. And he said, "Who, who are my mother and my brothers, but those who do the will of my father who is in heaven? He placed a decided prominence upon spiritual family. He didn't say, well, you know, the natural family doesn't matter. But he says, here's a line of distinction. He calls it in Matthew 10, the uh, the sword of division. It will divide even households because our primary allegiance is to God. And we could even say from the other direction, his primary allegiance is to us. It isn't to the kings and the princes and the rulers of this age. It is to the church. That is and always will be his great interest. He's taken even a greater interest in us than the angels. Though their share in heaven is equal to ours. God is making a distinction. That's what redemption is all about. They shall be mine, not these others. 
It's a difference that God makes. Jesus speaks of it. I said Paul does as well. You remember when he says, well, do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. It's the same idea. I'm not saying don't love your neighbor. Well, I'll go even further than love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Jesus says as much. But there's a, a special kind of love that a believer is to have for other believers. And the question which I would ask you in light of our redemption, that God has redeemed me and has redeemed you, is do you show the same kind of preference that God does? And do you see that the general equity of these laws apply even today? That we are to do good, especially to the household of the faith? That we are to show preference to those who are of the household of faith? Even above natural ties? Even above uh, civic ties? Those of our, of our common land? The teaching of the Bible is that we should and that we must. I'm not saying, let me repeat, to treat others poorly. Do good to all, Paul says, yes, but especially to the household of faith. Show them the greatest esteem, the greatest favor, the greatest privilege. Why? Because they, along with you, are recipients of the greatest privilege and prize of all, namely the redemption of God. Do the most good to them. There are further distinctions which we find in the passage, which I could just briefly summarize, which are not as uh, which are not as consequential as that between the redeemed and the unredeemed. Fascinating ones like, well, God is saying, in an urban setting, there's no right of redemption. But in a village, there is. And you say, now, why was that? I don't want to get too into that. But uh, Bonar has a good suggestion. He says, well, God is not entitling uh, uh, the, the structures of man to be redeemed. He's only saying the land is his. And in the village, in the countryside, it was really the land you were talking about. But in the city, it was these buildings, these apartment buildings or whatever. And God is saying, that's not my interest. My interest is the land. Well, okay, here's another one. A distinction made between the common people and the Levites. We could see some general equity here as well. For is God not entitled to show preference to his ministers? And does he not do so in the new covenant as well? He makes a distinction between the rich and the poor. He makes a distinction, distinction in the kind of service and slavery. And there's a fascinating idea for you. He talks about permanent slavery and impermanent slavery. He says in certain cases, uh, these, these people are enslaved you as your very possession. Although, uh, let me add, as Bonar does, that he's, he's really treating this as a kind of judgment for the Gentiles, those who were not redeemed. They could be your slaves, really. Because they were under a kind of judgment. But you see your brother who is redeemed. He couldn't be. There's a distinction for you. And then that finally there's a distinction between what happens in and out of the land. There was no right of redemption outside of the land. But inside there always was. The great overarching idea here. In the differentiation and the distinctions that God is making is this. Help your brother. That's what God is saying. Verse 35, if your brother, if one, or if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, again, you see, he's talking about your brother, someone who, like you, has been redeemed, then you shall help him. That's the general equity of the law. When, when Paul says, show preference to the household of faith, when Jesus says the same thing in his own way, what he's really saying is what God is saying here, help your brother. Have a concern for the well-being of your brother. That is your brother in Christ. Doesn't John say the same thing all through his first epistle? Here's another principle. That of equity and fairness. Very simply, don't let the coming jubilee make you withhold your hand. 
or, or, uh, or in other words, don't fail to redeem your brother because, well, the Jubilee is coming in a few years anyways. Or on the other hand, if you do redeem him, well, then be sure that you're fair in the price that you pay in light of the coming Jubilee. But, uh, but coming now to the sixth principle, there is that of Jubilee, which I've referred to over and over again. And we need to be reminded here as we find this concept throughout these verses, what the Jubilee represented. Well, what the Jubilee represented was the setting of all things right that man in the meantime was either unwilling or unable to do so himself. Perhaps uh, man had no redeemer or one who was unwilling. Perhaps he had no ability to redeem himself. Well, remember the Jubilee, God says. And remember as well uh, the greater uh, setting which is in view here, namely uh, not just the temporal jubilees, but that to which it pointed. The favorable year of the Lord, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that would mean, Israel's redemption, when she would come into a more, and sh- uh, a more sure and lasting possession of her inheritance. Uh, and uh, we might say, uh, to a similar extent, we are like Israel looking for our redemption. I don't mean freedom from sin, but I do mean freedom from uh, the difficulties and the trials and the sufferings of this present time. And we, like Israel, are filled with the hope of jubilee. We know that there are many wrongs that have yet to be set right, but we look for the favorable coming year of the Lord. And that is what fills our hearts with hope even now. Again, there is your general equity. Presently, you might say we have an earnest of our redemption, but we look forward, even Paul says, to the redemption of our bodies. The, 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 the full measure is coming in the favorable year of the Lord's coming. The final principle is that of obedience to God and connected with that is obligation to your brother. You notice God saying throughout these verses that you shall fear your God. He says it in verse 36. Take no usury or interest from him, from him, but fear God. So again, in verse 43, you shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear God. Or if we think of it from another vantage point, there is the love of God. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They're my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I'm your kinsman redeemer. I'm the one whose heart went out to you when no one else did. And might I say that is the basis of all morality, the fear of God, the love of God. The fact that we belong to God and that we love him. That he is our God and we are his people. That he brought us out of the land of slavery. Slavery to sin. And he redeemed us. And he made us our own. Why should we do this or that? Why should we listen to these commandments? Well, for this reason, God says, because you belong to me. And because I loved you. Do you see that you are at most stewards of his? If by grace he has befriended you. That he has a right to you and that you have no right to claim anything as your own, not even your own self. And beyond that, do you appreciate the price that he paid? So often we think of sin and duty in terms of the thing itself. I don't want to commit this sin or I want to obey this commandment, but we lose sight of God. We lose sight of the blood. The ultimate reason that we obey and that we turn from sin is him. 
But the other side of that is the love of the brother, which is really the great thing from the human standpoint. The fact that the more your heart is bound to your brother, the more you will seek to do for him as God did for you. And that is indeed the controlling thought of the Christian life. Not only the duty which I have to God, but the duty which I have to my brother. And what was it that made him my brother? Well, it was God, God's grace. He made us brothers and nothing else. And now as a result of that, it isn't just that God's heart went out to me and even now goes out to me through the sympathizing heart of his son. But it's that my heart goes out to him for I love him. And as a result of that, it goes even farther than that, if I could even speak that way. It's that my heart goes out to my brother. And that, I say, is the general equity for the believer. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. And so live with this in mind always. Live for him and show others the favors of his grace. Be like him. Amen. And let us return our praise to God as we stand together and sing hymn 265 in Christ.